This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 470. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Psalms. Psalm 32. So a Psalm of David, Maskil. So this is another psalm by Israel's great shepherd king. And this is a mass kill psalm, and it's the first one we come upon. Now once again, our translators did not translate some of these Hebrew words in the titles of psalms. And the reason is that they got mixed up going all the way back to the Septuagint translation, where they got mixed up. And whenever they had to the chief musician, they would think that was the start of a new psalm and they had start the psalm there instead of realizing that some of these psalms have postscripts and if we look at Habakkuk chapter 3 we can see that to the chief musician belongs in the postscript of the previous psalm not in the superscript in the introduction of the next psalm so a lot of these words that make sense attached to the proper psalm didn't make sense attached to the wrong one and so they decided they were just useless musical notations or something and the King James translators didn't even translate them. But this word maskil, which they haven't translated, is a word that means instruction. And so the psalms that are maskil psalms are psalms of instruction. And this is actually the first we come upon. And the maskil psalms are 32 the only one in this first book of Psalms, then 42, 44, 45, 52, 53, 54, 55, 74, 78, 88, 89, and 142. So there's some in each book except for book four of the Psalms. And this is the one in the first Genesis book. So here the instruction is regarding the great blessing of those whose sins are forgiven. And it is closely connected with Psalm 33, which is a song sung by the forgiven person of this psalm. Now after Psalm 31, in which David talked about the Lord delivering him from his great illness and from the the punishment, the just deserts that, that he was experiencing for his sin, well, it's therefore appropriate that here he talks about the forgiveness of sin. So he says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So here we have this word blessed, and it's a word that we realize in English is a word that is pretty nebulous. It doesn't really say much of anything. We think of a blessing, and well, we get the idea of something vaguely good. We don't really get much idea of exactly what. But there are two different Hebrew words that are translated blessed. And this one means great happiness, or how happy, oh the happiness. A very emotional word. And so it's a word for great happiness. How happy, or oh the happiness of the one whose transgression is forgiven. So there are many in our day and in our world who seek for happiness in a whole host of ways. And in our society it's very common to seek for happiness in entertainment. Some seek forward in wealth, some seek forward in fame or in power, and so forth. 
Yet for the believer, we find great happiness in knowing that our rebellion against God and our sins are forgiven. So our happiness is found in our restored relationship with God. I think this is true happiness and this is lasting happiness. It's beyond just happiness for a moment. And it's a happiness that rises above the circumstances of this world. Because we can be happy with his happiness even in the midst of sorrowful circumstances. Now Sellers compares this statement to congratulations or felicitations given. For example, to a happy couple at a wedding. But here the congratulations, the felicitations are given to the one who is forgiven. So felicitations, congratulations to the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now we have forgiven and covered, and covered was really the temple symbology, where the sins were covered over. Yet the current day reality is that Christ on the cross, he did not just cover our sins, but he removed them completely. Now Bollinger suggests here, instead of a covered, he suggests the word atoned. And he suggests that this is by the death and the merit of a substituted sacrifice. Now David experienced such forgiveness and for such atonement when he was forgiven of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Now that sin had no atonement according to the law. The law's demand for both adultery and murder was death. There was no atoning sacrifice. There was no covering over. There was no forgiveness of that sin according to the law. But even though David had committed two sins that had no forgiveness, the Lord forgave and atoned his sins anyway. And how was it he was able to do that? Well, we realize it was because the Lord was looking forward to his own sacrifice on David's behalf on the cross. So David knew what it meant to have his transgression forgiven and his sin covered. And he says, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. So blessed here is again, oh, the happiness, or how happy is the man, and that's the word Adam in Hebrew. Blessed is the Adam, the member of Adam's race, unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And this is true of believers in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So we are redeemed through his blood and our sins are forgiven. So we, too, do not have our sins imputed to us. So we are among the blessed, the how happy, the congratulated people in this psalm. Whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Spirit here is the Hebrew word ruach. And the ruach is the spirit. Now the spirit of a man is his mind, his thoughts. And so in his mind, in his thoughts, in his computations and figuring out of things and so forth, there is no guile. In other words, there is no deceit. We think of guile, it's not a word we use so often anymore, but children, for example, are often guileless. 
I'm afraid they all too quickly learn guile in hiding their own sins. Now David had experienced being guileless, but then his great sin had forced him to guile. We see how he first tried to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so he'd think the baby was his. And then when that didn't work, he had Uriah murdered through Joab in the war so nobody would know what he'd done. Well, he had had guile in his spirit, and I don't think he enjoyed the experience. But now he feels the relief of being able to be guileless again. Verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. So David says when he kept silence. And this, I believe, again was regarding his sin. He had sinned. He needed forgiveness, he needed atonement, yet he kept silent, he, he hid it. He tried to hide it. And this is what we see him doing in 2 Samuel chapter 11, is that he hides his sin, he keeps silence regarding his sin. And this happens over a period of some months, I mean it goes till the baby's born, before Nathan finally comes to David and accuses him of the sin. So he keeps silence for at least close to a year. But he says that when he kept silence, his bones waxed old. And this would be from anguish of spirit. He was in anguish through his own guilt, and yet I believe Jehovah's hand was also heavy upon him, as we see in verse 4. So it wasn't just his own guilt, but it was also the hand of Jehovah weighing him down with what he had done. Now we know that Jehovah promised physical misfortune as penalty for sins. And David was God's king, God's chosen representative. Since God had related himself to David, God was therefore obligated to deal with David regarding his sins. And we realize that eventually, although I don't think it happened right away, but eventually David suffered a loathsome illness as punishment for his sin, though he was finally allowed to unexpectedly recover. But he felt, even prior, I think, to his illness here, he felt the weight of his sin and the weight of Jehovah's hand pressing down on him. So his bones waxed old, he says, through my roaring all the day long. Roaring there means anguish. So his conscience was flaying him constantly for his great wickedness. And so he was in anguish all the day long because of his sin and his silence regarding it. Verse 4, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. So day and night constantly... Jehovah's hand was heavy upon him. There's no doubt, I think, that thy refers to the Lord. That his hand was heavy upon David day and night. And the weight of guilt is a heavy weight to suffer under. And though people try it today, I don't believe that any antidepressants can truly remove the weight of a guilty conscience brought on by the hand of God. Not at any rate like forgiveness can. So, 
When we are suffering under the weight of guilt, it is forgiveness. It's God's forgiveness that we need for relief. He says, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I have said that before kind of jokingly when I was very thirsty. <laughs> but it's, it's obviously speaking of suffering. That which was pleasant and, and pleasing and, and good for him was like drought now. And then he says, Selah. And there's that word, that connecting word. I mentioned Rotherham, who's one of the few translators I know of, perhaps the only translator I know of, who actually takes some of Thurtle's studies regarding the Psalms and actually incorporates them into his translation. Whenever he comes on the word Selah, he doesn't translate it with a word. Instead, he has a drawing, and the drawing is of two hands with facing away from each other with their fingers pointed in opposite direction. So if you look in Rotherham's translation, that's what you'll see. Whenever there's a seal, you see these two hands with the fingers. Of course, he doesn't have any arms on them, so it's hard for me to copy it exactly. But two hands with the fingers pointing in opposite directions. So it says you take, basically, you take what you came before it and you connect it with what came after it, is the idea. So since we don't have an English word like seal to say that, he does it with an illustration with the two hands, which I thought was very creative. So the hand that was heavy upon him, he now connects with the convic he connects that conviction, the trouble of the conviction to the confession, which the conviction led to. So he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So he says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And my iniquity have I not hid. Now that's what we see in Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. And that is after Samuel comes and tells his satirical story of what David had done. And then told about the man who, a poor man who had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he brought up like a pet, brought up like a child, basically like a, a house pet, and the rich man who had many herds and flocks, and when a traveler came to the rich man, he didn't take one of his own sheep, but he took the poor man's pet lamb and gave that as a meal for the stranger. And David was was greatly angry at that. And he says he, he is a son of death and he must restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. And Nathan said to him, you are the man. Now that was not a parallel parable because nothing in it was parallel to what actually happened. Parables are supposed to be parallel. But it was a satire of what David had done. For all that he had, all the many wives he had, he took Uriah's instead and then, of course, took away his life on top of it. Well, after he told David about the Lord's punishment, what did David do in verse 13? David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So David at last confessed his sin. And when he did, what happened? Second half of verse 13, Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So immediately upon David's confession, the Lord forgave him. So David might have feared that the Lord would not forgive him. 
And David well knew the law, and he knew that the penalty for what he did was sin, sin twicefold. And yet, when he confessed his sin, forgiveness followed immediately. And I don't know if that's what David was expecting. Maybe he was expecting to die. Maybe he was expecting to have the Lord say to him the same thing he said to Saul before him. And how unexpected the grace of God can often be. Yet many are never willing to acknowledge their sin. They're either always hiding their sins or else belittling them. Not realizing that confession and acknowledgement lead to grace. Yet at the same time, we shouldn't get mixed up regarding God's work today. And a lot of people turn to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 and try to apply it to today when John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so they think that we need to confess our sins. Well, it's good to confess your sin. As long as you're not confessing and admitting your sin, you're hanging on to it and justifying it. And the only way you're going to be released from the guilt of it is to confess it. And yet at the same time, this is a kingdom rule. He forgives we confess. And we need to realize that in our day, Ephesians 4.32 is what is the truth when he says, And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving. We're dealing graciously with one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven or dealt graciously with you. So we are already forgiven. We are already dealt graciously with. And God does not wait for us to confess to forgive our sins. Now we should confess our sins. We should turn away from our sins and repudiate them. But confession doesn't produce forgiveness for us. And to think this is to deny the reality of God's dispensation of grace and the blood of Christ, which he has applied to us. And the fact is that we don't even know all our sins. If I really had to confess all my sins, how often have I had a, have I, had I had a bad attitude about a thing and never admitted it to myself or anyone else? Not to mention confess it. How often do we sin and never even really acknowledge it in our own minds. So we certainly don't confess it. And yet our sins are forgiven. Now certainly if we committed adultery or murder or anything far down the scale from that, we should confess it to the Lord. But I don't think we do so in order to get forgiveness. We realize we already have forgiveness in Christ. But for David, his confession was immediately followed by the forgiveness for the iniquity of his sin. Now again, we have a Selah. And again, if we would imagine, that's the connection, or if we imagine Rotherham's two hands, one pointing backward and one pointing forward. This connects the forgiveness of God with, in the following verse, the prayer and worship that it produces. So he says in verse 6, For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. So because of his forgiveness, he says, For this shall everyone that is godly 
but that is a man of loving kindness or a man of grace. Everyone who is a man of grace, in other words, everyone in whom who has experienced the grace of God and his transgression being forgiven and his sin being covered. So everyone who is a man of grace will pray unto thee, unto the Lord, in a time when thou mayest be found. But Bollinger suggests that should be in a time of finding his need. So a man who realizes God's grace will pray unto him every time he finds that he has a need to do so. In a time of finding a need, he will pray to God because he knows he is a man of grace and he knows that God has forgiven his transgression and his sins. Then he says, Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. So the floods of great waters are the time of need of the preceding line. And we can stand above the floods and know they can never touch us because of the solid rock of the forgiveness of God that we stand upon. So in the floods of waters, they don't come nigh to the man of grace. Verse 7. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. So he says to God, Jehovah, you are my hiding place. And Bollinger points out we have Jehovah, my righteousness in verse 5, my hiding place in verse 7, and my guide in verse 8. Now David mentions the Lord being his hiding place. And we've talked about in a couple of the previous Psalms the fact that in the tribulation period the Lord is going to hide David in a secret place in his temple. Psalm 27, verse 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. And that's the same word as we have hiding place here. And in 31.20, we had, Thou shalt hide them, that is, those who trust in you, in the secret of your presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. We have the same word for a hiding place there. So the Lord is David's hiding place, preserving him from trouble and preserving him from those who would seek to destroy him. He says, Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Now we don't use the word compass too often in English today other than for that little instrument that tells you where north is. But if you ever use the compass and protractor in school, you know the compass was the instrument by which you would draw circles. And compass used to mean to encircle in Old English. And so you shall compass me about means you will encircle me with songs of deliverance. Now the next line starts one of these songs of deliverance and it seems that verse or chapter 33 is also a song of deliverance. All this, though this word songs can also mean a ringing cry or a shout. So when you've been delivered, you cry out, you shout for joy. And so he says, you shall compass me with songs of deliverance. Now again, we have a sila. Again, the two hands, the connection backward and forward. And this connects the reference to the songs of deliverance 
to the words that follow, which are an example of songs or shouts of deliverance. Bollinger says it connects this worship and praise with the further instructions and guidance which such people receive. Well, that is certainly true as well. And we do have further instruction and guidance in verse 8. He says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. So here we have the words of Jehovah. And of course, up till now, the psalmist David has been speaking to Jehovah, but now Jehovah himself speaks. He says, I will instruct. And thus we have the title, Maskil Instruction. This is a related word. So his deliverance, in this case, his deliverance is by instruction. And often being instructed in the way of the Lord is what delivers us. So he says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Of course, being instructed in the Lord's way can indeed deliver us from following the wide and broad way to destruction. Then he says, I will guide thee with mine eye. Or Bullinger says, let me cause mine eye to take counsel concerning thee. So the eye would take counsel with the one who would receive instruction. He says, verse 9, Be ye not as the horse, or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. So he mentions the horse or the mule. We realize that horses and mules, they need to be broken in order to be ridden, in order to be controlled. And the horse and the mule would not come near a man for instruction, of course, unless they are restrained. They must be restrained. They have no understanding, and so they must be restrained. Their mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Or they must be ornamented with bridle and the um, the tackle the trappings that of the gear that holds in the horse. And it says, lest they come near unto thee, and says they won't come near to you, in other words, for instruction, unless you force them to hold them in with the bit and the bridle. And in the same way in our day, the stubborn will not seek the help and the guidance of Yahweh. We live in a day when Adam kind are not restrained, and so they run wild to their own hurt. Though in the kingdom, which comes next, men will be restrained, and then they will be forced to come near and learn the ways of Yahweh. In the thousand years of his parousia, the restraints will be greatly reduced, for then men will have learned to seek to him for his help and instruction. Now in the new heavens and new earth, all rule and all authority and power will have been put down. For all then will do his will from the heart. Yet we are, men today are allowed to run their own ways, and yet we are called on not to be like the horse or the mule, 
who must be trained and broken before they will come near for instruction. We should draw near without being broken, without having to be forced to do it. We should come near to him to seek his instruction and to seek his guidance. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. So many sorrows come upon the wicked. The lawless bring misery upon themselves. Now we live in a day when entertainment and advertising promise excitement and pleasure in sin. But those who follow such poor advice find that this is not the case. David had experienced misery when he sinned. Now he was experiencing the blessedness of forgiveness. And as Moses knew, the pleasures of sin are just for a season. And those who believe the lies of our society and culture will discover that to their own hurt. So sorrow comes upon the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. And that mercy is chesed, and that is the word for grace, loving kindness or grace in the Old Testament. And it is God's grace that allows the one who trusts in the Lord, it allows his trust to come to fruition. For without it, there would be no point in trusting in the Lord. Without his grace, none could be accepted with him. But the one who trusts in the Lord, he says, grace will surround him. God's grace will keep him and his trust will be proven to be wise and to be right. Verse 11, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. So David ends up by calling upon the righteous. And why are they righteous? Well, I'll go back to verse 1, because their transgression is forgiven, and their sin is atoned for. Otherwise, as the psalm says, none is righteous, no, not one. But those who have been forgiven, whose sin is covered, they should be glad in the Lord and rejoice. He says, And shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. And again, they shout for joy from being forgiven. And we too have the same joy. Praise God, we have forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of us whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, we can praise the Lord and shout for joy in Him. Psalm 33. Psalm 33 is connected to and very closely related to Psalm 32. And notice that there is no title or postscript between these two psalms. And that Psalm 33 starts with rejoicing, which is where Psalm 32 left off. Yet the whole tone and construction of this psalm is very different from Psalm 32, so we don't doubt that it is a separate psalm, but the two are closely connected. And Psalm 33 is probably another example of the songs or shouts of deliverance mentioned in verse 7 of Psalm 32. Verse 1, he says, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous. 
for praise is comely for the upright. So he says to rejoice in the Lord. And so here we consider the Lord as a cause of rejoicing. Now people in this world rejoice in many things. They rejoice in wealth. They rejoice in entertainment. They rejoice in success. They rejoice in fame. So on and so forth. But he is the best cause of rejoicing for the righteous. And rejoice here is literally shout for joy. Shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. For praise is comely. It's, it's attractive. It's beautiful for the upright. Verse 2. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Now David, we know, was a harp player. He was a masterful harp player. And he probably composed a lot of his psalms using the harp. So as he's writing this psalm, he is probably playing the harp and composing it on the harp. So he says, praise the Lord with harp. And then he says, sing unto him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Now this probably describes the harp. Remember the Hebrew poetic form where something is put one way and then another way in the next line to lock in the meaning. So this is perhaps a ten-string psaltery or harp that he is playing. Verse 3, Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. So here he speaks of a new song. And this is the first of seven times we have a new song in the Old Testament. And six of those seven times are in the Psalms. We have this first one in Psalm 33, 3, Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 96, verse 1, Psalm 98, verse 1, Psalm 144, verse 9, Psalm 149, and verse 1, and Isaiah 42 and verse 10. Now this new song is a new thing or a fresh thing. Something not seen before. And ultimately, I think when we talk about the new song, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom, God's government on earth, will provide the new reason to sing and to praise him. And when God's kingdom comes, a whole new Music will be necessary, a whole new set of songs, a very new kind of music to sing the glories of God's kingdom. And men will have a whole new inspiration for writing songs in the kingdom. So he says, sing unto him a new song. So that takes us forward to the kingdom. Play skillfully, so this would be on the harp again, play skillfully with a loud noise. A better translation would be with a shout of joy. Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. So the word of the Lord is right, and we can depend on this. And I hope we all realize that, that what God has written in his word is right. Now, of course, we realize that sometimes there have been copyist errors. Sometimes we have poor translations but 
when it came from the pen of God the way the Lord wrote it, it is right. And I think our manuscripts, the copy errors are few. And as far as the translation errors, we at least we can say that God's truth shines through. But the word of the Lord is right. And the word of the Lord does not change. Rather, we must change to conform to it. And we will never really succeed at Bible study until we settle this fact absolutely. That the word of the Lord is right and the word of the Lord is always right. And once we settle on that, then we can move forward with Bible study. But as long as we are unclear on that, we will always be held back and we'll never really find the truth. Now God's word, the Lord's word is right, and his works are done in truth. All that the Lord does is, is truth. The Lord never has a bad idea. Verse 5, he loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So the Lord loves righteousness and judgment, and both of these... Righteousness and judgment will be great aspects of his kingdom. And they will be acting together. Righteousness and judgment will go hand in hand in his kingdom. Now today God's acts are both righteous and gracious. And righteousness and graciousness, righteousness and grace go hand in hand today. But in the kingdom it will be righteousness and judgment. Then the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now that word earth is Eretz, which can mean earth or it can mean land. But certainly if we're looking forward to the kingdom, the whole earth will be full of the goodness of the Lord. Goodness there is again the word chesed, or loving kindness. Earth is full of the grace of the Lord. Now that has never been true so much as it is true now. The earth indeed is full of the grace of the Lord. And we realize that God's grace blazed forth in a favorable intervention for mankind at the start of this dispensation of grace. But at the same time, in the glorious kingdom to come, that kingdom is not earned nor deserved by men. And so his grace will be intimately involved in bringing that kingdom in. Now that kingdom will act as kingdoms do. It will have to act in judgment and justice. But still, it will be the great grace of God that will redeem this fallen sinful earth and make it into his glorious kingdom. So the earth will indeed be full of his grace then as well. His gracious redemption. Verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So we return from the kingdom of the future to the creation in the past. And we find out that the word of the Lord is not only right, and his works are truth, but that it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens themselves were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The host is the army. And of course, this could refer to the host army of stars and planets, an innumerable number out there in the 
universe. Or else, of course, it can refer to the heavenly host of angels, which is indeed an army. Although here, since we have it in the context of creation, I would tend to think that it is speaking of the starry host of heaven. Now the Lord made the host of heaven by the breath of his mouth, by his word, by speaking them into existence. And not, in fact, by a long process of evolution, them making themselves piece by piece, as is taught today. He made all the host of heaven by the breath of his mouth. But the word breath there is the Hebrew ruach, or spirit. He made them by the spirit of his mouth. Verse 7. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Now this too he did in creation. We realize that he created the earth. It was covered by water, but he gathered the waters together and formed seas and caused the dry land to appear. Now Bollinger says that this word is translated as an heap. He says in three versions of ancient versions of the Old Testament, the Aramaic version, which was what Israelites spoke once they gave up Hebrew, the Septuagint, of course, is the Greek, and the Syriac, which was the It was the high uh, Babylonian language, unlike the Aramaic, which was more the common. In these translations, instead of saying, and in a heap, it says, as a skin bottle. He gathered the waters of the sea together in a skin bottle, and he layeth up the depth in storehouses. Now this mention of the depth seems to me to be a reference to the great deep that we have back in Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 when at the time of the flood it says in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, the 17th day of the month the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So these fountains of the great deep were apparently waters collected deep under the earth. And there's much evidence in the Bible that water was originally laid up under the earth and burst forth in the flood in order to destroy the world that then was, which was overflowed by water and perished. Now we still have evidence of this deep underwater water and that there still is water deep down under the earth. And I believe that our deep ocean trenches are basically tears in the earth caused at the time of the flood that go all the way down to those ancient underwater aquifers. But he gathered the sea together on the surface of the earth and then laid up water deep in the storehouses under the earth. Verse 8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So in light of his great power and creation, he calls upon all the earth to fear the Lord. Now this is an excellent example of the Hebrew poetic form that we've mentioned many times. That the Hebrew poetry was not so much about the repetition of sounds, which is how our English poetry is done. And we'll have the same sound at the end of a line. Of course, anyone who knows poetry also knows that we have meter in English poetry. But we have meter and we have repetition of sounds at the end of a line. 
Well, in Hebrew, they had some of the same things, but rather than doing repetition of sounds, they would often do repetition of ideas. You see, you have one line that would say a thing one way, and then the next line would say the thing uh, a slightly different way in order to lock in the meaning of the first line. And this is an ec excellent example of that. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Well, what is the earth? Does that mean he wants the dirt to fear the Lord? He wants the rocks to fear the Lord? No, he says, let all the inhabitants of the world. The earth, by the earth, he means the inhabitants of the world. The world there is the Hebrew tabel, which means the inhabited world. So let all the inhabitants of the world. Then what does it mean to fear? Well, it means to stand in awe. To fear the Lord is to stand in awe of the Lord. So let all the earth, let all the inhabitants of the world fear the Lord, stand in awe of him. Why? Verse 9. For he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So he spoke and it was. Rotherham makes this, he said, be. So he spoke, he commanded things to be, and they were. Just by his word, just by his command. And God can speak to nothing and command it, and things are produced. That's the power of God. This is the way it was in the beginning. He commanded, and it stood fast. It was established. Now the same thing is going to happen again. When the Lord will speak and bring the kingdom of God into existence, he will say, be, and the kingdom will exist. Verse 10, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. So the powerful one who made the world is not threatened by the rebellion of the nations. Now the nations around Israel often took counsel against God's people. And yet they could trust the Lord against their many foes. Now in our day too, nations have many schemes. In our own nation, we have had many rulers who have had many schemes. And many of those schemes have come to nothing. Now in that case, of course, it's not by the direct or open intervention of God. Rather, the plans of men often come to nothing, particularly when time is involved. But when his government comes, no scheme of men, no scheme of any nation will succeed against it. So he will bring the counsel of all the nations to nothing. And he maketh the devices of the people of none effect. So all their plans, all their schemes, he makes ineffectual. Because he will bring in his kingdom, nothing can stop it. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. So his counsels will never come to nothing, as those of the nations do. His counsel stands forever, and forever there is olam, outflowing or in perpetuity. And the thoughts of his heart his innermost thoughts will last to all generations. In Hebrew, that is generations, generations. And the word is repeated, meaning 
generations and generations on and on in perpetuity. So his thoughts will never pass away without coming to be. Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. So this says, blessed is the nation. And this is, again, the word for how happy. How happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. And there is only one nation that has ever qualified for this up till now, and that is the nation of Israel. Now in the future, in the kingdom, all nations will become his inheritance. And this will be true in the kingdom of God. But now we realize that no nation is chosen over any other nation. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us that the Gentiles, which should be translated the nations, are fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. But that having three prefixes on, in the front of those words, heirs, body, and partakers, this should be the nations should be joint heirs and of a joint body and joint partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the nations are equal and joint today. And there is no nation whose God is the Lord over all the other nations. But in the past, that nation was always Israel. They were his chosen people. They were his nation. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And, and Israel was a happy nation. A how happy nation because of that. The people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. He said, You only have I known of all the nations on the earth. And Israel was his inheritance. Although in the future, again, that will be all nations. He'll inherit them all. Verse 13, The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. So the Lord looks down from heaven, from on high. And how he does this we do not know, but we do know that his eyes miss nothing. He looks and he sees all. He beholdeth the sons of men. And this is the Hebrew, the Ben-Adam, the sons of Adam. Now he will do this. He will look down and behold all the sons of Adam when he goes into action in order to start his kingdom. He will look down and see all men and his eyes will reach even to the remotest part of the earth. When he looks out, he will see all and he will miss no one. Verse 14. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And notice again, he looks from the place of his habitation. He looks from heaven. He does not need to be on earth to look and see all men. In fact, if he was on earth looking with natural eyes, he wouldn't see all men. But he looks out upon all the earth, and he looks out to rule the earth from heaven. And this reminds us of Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? So the Lord is on the throne, and he's looking from the throne upon the footstool. 
Now this time we had looketh and beholdeth in verse 13. Now we have looketh again, but this time it is a more intense word, to gaze or to stare. He is looking intently upon all the inhabitants of the earth. Now the word habitation and inhabitants is the same word in this verse. So from his home, he looks upon them in their home. Verse 15, He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. So he fashions their heart alike. He fashions their heart all the same way. So he does a work in the heart of each man. Now what is this? Well, I believe that this happens when the Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And when God's Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, He does a work on all men at the same time. And when the Spirit is poured out on the all flesh, then John 16 and verse 8 is true. Where it says of the Holy Spirit, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So he reproves the world. Regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this work is done individually and personally in the heart and the inner being of every man. And the result will be that all men, that Christ will be unveiled. Christ will blaze forth, and all men will know who Christ is and what Christ is in the sight of God. Moreover, he redoes the inner being of man, and he removes the sin and death principle brought in by Adam's sin from every man. However, the individual sins of wicked men are not removed, as we will see next. And with God taking charge of the world and removing the sin and death principle, now individual sins will show up more clearly without them being hidden against the background of the sin of all mankind. But then he fashions their hearts alike, he does a work in the hearts of all, and then he considers all their works. So after his great work of revelation comes a great work of judgment. And so first he reveals himself, but then, then he judges, then he considers all their works. Verse 16, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. So when God acts to judge all men by their works, no ruler can save himself by a huge army from the judging power of the Lord. His army will avail him nothing. There's nothing he can do with his army. Not even the greatest king, the most mighty ruler, can do with his army to save himself from this. And then a mighty man is not delivered by much strength. Mighty man there is the Hebrew Gabor. Or the mighty man, the strong man. Well, no strength of body can save a man. doesn't matter if he's a bodybuilder. doesn't matter how strong he is. No strength of body can save him from the power of the God who is now judging him 
based on what he has done. Verse 17, And horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Now, the horse was the military advantage of that day. And a foot soldier was at a great disadvantage compared to a soldier mounted on a horse. So the horse symbolizes the military advantage. Now, the military advantage, or the military weapons of the day when God steps in, will do no one any good. No guns, no bombs, no tanks, no missile launchers or anything else will deliver any man from God's probing eye of judgment at that time. And no one will be able to ward it off. No one will be able to protect himself by military might. So just like the horse will not be able to save any man by his strength, so the military weapons of our day will not be able to save any man from God's judgment. But praise God that in Christ we can stand up his mighty judgment, since our sins have been forgiven. Verse 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. So he looks especially on these, on those who fear him. Now he does not look on them to punish or to destroy, but in their case he looks on them to deliver and to bless. He looks upon those who hope in his mercy. Mercy there is again chesed, loving kindness or grace. It is not those trusting in their own good works upon whom he looks in order to bless, but it is upon those who trust in his grace. Verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now, soul here is the Hebrew nephesh. Of course, here it's put for themselves, their very being. So he delivers them from death. Those who fear him, who are in awe of him, and who hope, who place their expectation in his grace. Those are the ones he delivers their soul from death. And to keep them alive in famine. Now there's a question, because famine is hard to picture in the kingdom of God. So what would famine have to do with anything in the kingdom of God? Well, we know that as the kingdom starts, God is going to have to deal with those who refuse to submit to it. And perhaps those who will not yield to the kingdom will suffer from famine. But certainly those who will yield would be spared from it. This reminds me of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. Where Paul writes, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So God's principle is that you must earn your keep. Now, of course, in our society, people wanting to hand out welfare checks to people who have not earned them, they say, well, we have to do it for their children's sake. And even if they're able-bodied adults who are refusing to work, we can't stop giving them welfare because what about the children? And it's true. I mean, if, if you can't give children food, 
without giving it to their parents too. And you give it to one is to give it to the other. But in God's kingdom, he can target the famine. He can see to it that the children eat and the parents don't. And of course, we can't do that. Now we know when the parousia comes in Zechariah chapter 14, the one way God will bring the nations that have rebelled against him back into line, he says, it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. So until they submit and go to worship him, they will get no rain. So there is a case where there would be famine. And that's at the start of the parousia. So certainly we could see the same kind of thing happening at the start of the kingdom. But anyone who trusts in the Lord would be spared from it. Now we know in the tribulation period, there certainly will be famines, because when the disciples ask the Lord what will be the sign of his parousia and of the consummation of the eon, he gave one of the signs in verse 7, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. So there will be famine there as well. But again, in God's kingdom, he'll be there, he'll be capable of delivering those who trust in him and hope in his grace from famine. Verse 20, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So our soul waits for the Lord. And again, the soul, the nephesh in Hebrew, is put for we ourselves wait for the Lord. And we do wait for him. We wait eagerly for his kingdom to come to pass. So we do wait on the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Now again, notice that, remember, we talked about this is a song of deliverance, answering to 32.7. This is a song or shout of deliverance. And the Lord is our deliverance. He is our help and our shield. Verse 21, For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. So the heart, again, the innermost being in the Hebrew thought, will rejoice in him, and our heart will rejoice in the kingdom to come. In view of that kingdom to come, we will rejoice in the Lord. Because we have trusted in his holy name. And we trust in his name, even though the kingdom is not yet evident. Even though the kingdom is not yet here, and as far as we can look around from the natural way of things, it would appear that it would never come. But still, we trust in his set-apart reputation. And we know that he'll bring the kingdom in in its time. Verse 22, Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in thee. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us. Mercy, again, is chesed, loving kindness or grace. And where would we be without this? So let his chesed grace be upon us, according as we hope in thee, or in harmony with our expectation in thee. And our expectation for our future is in the Lord. So this is Psalm 33. 
Psalm about the greatness of the Lord, trusting in the Lord to bring in the kingdom. And we do trust in him for that. We trust in him for the deliverance both of ourselves and of this sinful fallen world. Now Psalm 34, David also speaks of the Lord and his deliverance. But we will, we're out of time for this session and we will consider Psalm 34 next time.